We are creatures of desire. What we most desire is meaning. What makes us suffer most is a lack of meaning. The Meaningful Life with Andrew G. Marshall. Marital therapist, author, and communications trainer Andrew G. Marshall invites guests from all walks of life to discuss what makes life meaningful. Hello, I'm Andrew G. Marshall, and my witness on The Meaningful Life is consulting psychiatrist Dr. Henry Emmons, who is the author of The Chemistry of Calm, a powerful drug-free way to quieten your fears and overcome your anxiety. I'm particularly pleased to have this conversation because if we are overwhelmed with fear and anxiety, we're probably going to be more focused on surviving than living a meaningful life. We're also probably going to be flooded, overwhelmed, and unable to listen to or communicate effectively. And that's going to be a problem in our relationships too. So welcome, Henry. Let's start right at the very beginning. How connected when it comes to calmness are the mind and the body? Well, they're part of the same integrated system. We talk about mind and body or heart and soul as being different things, but in fact, they're not. They're just a unified whole. And the mind and the body are really integrated when it comes to the autonomic stress response system. So when we're talking about anxiety, it's bi-directional. The body can, it can start in the body with our perceptions, our sensory input, and then it can very quickly get transferred into the mind. But also, you know, the problem can start with our thoughts about something, and that can signal the body that we're in some sort of a emergency or crisis, even if that's not true. It's the, the thought that makes it so. So there's this constant interplay, and I think it is useful to think of them separately because there's different places that we can intervene or that we can do something to change things. But really, it's, it's happening so fast, and there's such a great amount of integration that it's, it's really one and the same. But I think that in our world, unfortunately, the disciplines are separated. You have doctors generally who are looking after the body and will be saying, oh, I think you might have skin cancer there. And you'll have therapists who will be saying, tell me about your childhood and are thinking about the mind. It's very seldom that the two of them are actually looked at at the same time. I suppose almost your office is one of the few places where people are. As a psychiatrist, you're thinking about the body chemistry and also what What's happening in somebody's life? There's actually very few places that everybody's as much focused on all of those things at the same time. That's been so true in medicine and actually even in psychiatry. People don't necessarily know this, but some years ago, psychiatry as a discipline began to forget about this integration between mind and body. I think it was there originally, but then we became so enamored with brain chemistry and medications and the like that we, we largely gave up that sense of integration. I actually chose to go to my training program for that very reason, because the place I went was really known as one of the early adopters and early researchers for this mind-body connection that at the time was called psychoneuroimmunology. So this, this notion that the whole 
if you're thinking or perceiving a certain thing, it impacts even your immunological system or your neurological system. And, you know, just a really good example that most people do not think of as being part of this mind-body connection is Alzheimer's disease. I, I was researching for a book about the aging brain a few years ago and was surprised myself to learn of what a strong connection there is between experiencing a really highly stressful event and then the onset of Alzheimer's symptoms. And that's not to say that the whole illness is caused by stress, but there is clearly a correlation between high levels or prolonged levels of stress and almost every physical condition, even things we don't think of as stress-related. So what I liked about your book is you sort of put the idea of stress, anxiety, and fear into a historical context. How would our grandparents and our great-grandparents and our ancestors have seen the ideas of anxiety, fear, and stress? Right. Great question. I, that was something I, I learned so much about myself when researching that, and I found it very interesting as well. So historically, I mean, stress has always been around, of course. Fear has always been around, and it's, it's actually a very strongly built-in survival mechanism. But the concept of fear as a thought-driven experience is something that has changed over time. It's really become much more common or prevalent in our day and age. So our, our ancestors certainly would have experienced fear and stress, but by and large, it was shorter-lived. You know, they might have had more severe stresses than we do in today's world. Certainly at times, thinking about pioneers in the U.S. where I live, there were times where they were short of food or they were really subject to, you know, the vicissitudes of nature. And really, you know, there was a legitimate threat to their survival. That's a huge, huge stressor. But those kind of things wouldn't go on forever. Whereas in our day and age, many of the things that we find fear-inducing or stressful are not actually threats to our survival, but the body doesn't make that distinction. If we think something is a real threat to us, the body reacts as though that's actually true. And I think our problem today for so many of us is that the things that we perceive as being threatening or stressful go on and on and on. And there's just very, very little downtime or time to reset this whole system and go into that rest mode, feeling non-threatened. And you particularly stress the idea of being a drug-free response. Do you think that we are too quick to reach for the medical solutions? Well, I certainly feel that we are in my country, in the US. I don't think it is quite the same everywhere. And I think Europe perhaps is a little more careful with some of these medications. But you know, there's, there really aren't very many drug or medication solutions to anxiety. And many of the drugs that are used are highly habit-forming. I mean, very, very habit-forming. And I think they need to be used with great caution. But even the drugs that we might not think of as habit-forming or problematic, things like the antidepressants, like the serotonin drugs, people who are on those for a long period of time can also have a very difficult time coming off of them. So but these drugs need to be used with, I think, with great respect and care. 
I think that way too often people who show up in a doctor's office and have legitimate concerns about how they're feeling, they're given a prescription because it is the quickest and easiest thing to do, and there is evidence that it works. But if we're not addressing the source of the problem or the person's skill at being able to deal with stresses in their lives, we're not really doing them long-term favors. And what's your definition of long-term when it comes to the serotonin type of drugs? Right. That's a great question. I will admit that I am a little out of sync compared to many of my colleagues. I think the standard length of treatment for something like an episode of depression or or what you might call a a situational depression or anxiety might be a, a year at the minimum. And I think that for many people, if they're on a serotonin drug for a year or more, they are going to have some difficulty getting off of it. I think if it's more than two years and certainly up to five years or more, people can really struggle when coming off of these drugs. And it's it's often something that even the prescribing physicians don't recognize, that there is this withdrawal uh, problem that can make it just extremely difficult to live without the medication once your body has really become used to it. But I think that that happens for most people in a period of about six to 12 months. So what advice would you give to somebody who's in a dark place today, not on the drug issue, but on the way that we're going to approach it today, the whole mind and body approach? How do they start? They're in a dark place. They can feel anxiety. They can feel that the fear is sometimes getting to them. What do they do? Right. I think the first thing is to really be able to acknowledge that that is happening, to be able to see that there is a problem with how you're feeling, admit that, and not feel any shame about it, but just use it as information and say, okay, there's something going on here. Just like if you had, let's say you had a growth on your skin that you needed attention for. You don't want to ignore that because it just becomes a bigger problem. So acknowledging that it's there and then making the decision to act, to do something about it. And I think that a really good first action is to consult with someone who knows about these things. It might be your, your doctor, it might be a therapist or counselor, but to try to seek another opinion and get some help about it. Even though there's a lot of things people can do on their own, I think if it's feeling really dark and people are overwhelmed, it's a good idea to reach out and seek help. And I think before you go to that appointment, I would try and come up with an image yourself that would actually help communicate it to the physician or the therapist that you're going to see. Because if somebody comes to you and says, you know, I feel like I've got the weight of the world on my shoulders, or I feel like I'm in a swamp and I can't get out, you begin to be able to understand an awful lot better than I'm just feeling stressed or I'm just feeling anxious. If you can actually give a picture, I think that helps you understand what it is and, you know, helps you understand, is it anxiety or is it fear or is it depression? Am I actually really angry? But, you know, you can begin to get some kind of picture that if you've got it for yourself, it helps to communicate it to other people. I think that's a great idea. I think that the more clarity that one can get in their minds, and I think stories, pictures, images, descriptive words are all quite helpful. Because you're right, I think the common thing is people just say, I feel bad, or I feel 
depressed or I feel anxious. And those words are not descriptive enough to really get at what's causing this. That's actually one of the problems, I think, with our medication approach is that, you know, we use these same things kind of reactively whenever someone reports that they're really feeling badly emotionally. But getting more nuanced about it allows us to understand it better, decide if it's an illness or not, and also really help to understand what's causing it. Because ultimately, that's what's really important in order to change it. So one of the ways that I liked of some of your images were the seven faces of anxiety. And we looked at different kinds of anxiety. And I'm going to sort of, if you don't mind, take you through them, because I think it's a a really good place to start. You have bottom-up anxiety. So what is bottom-up anxiety? Right. So this is getting back to our earlier discussion about the body-mind connection. And so the way the brain works is that there are these levels or these centers of communication. And so the brain is communicating with itself from one center to another. And there is a directional flow, if you will, from the body, from the, the senses, you know, your, your sight, your smell, your, your sense of touch that goes through the nervous system into the very base or the bottom of the brain. And then if something is clearly threatening, you don't have to think about it at all. There's just an automatic reaction that occurs. And that's sort of that bottom-up thing. There's this perception that comes through your senses that something is so threatening that you have to act right now, and this is an emergency. So that sets off all of those alarm bells, you know, with a a fight-or-flight reaction. But the information continues to flow, you know, from the body up to the mid part of the brain, where some sense is made of it initially. And that part of the brain, the amygdala, for example, helps to determine if this is an emergency that needs immediate reaction. And then the information goes up to the top or outer part of the brain that we call the cortex. And that's where thinking gets involved. And and we really start to try to use our minds and our logic and figuring this out to determine what to do about it. So in the bottom-up section, we have two kinds. We have scarcity and avoidance. Yes. So this is the part of the brain that is often referred to as reptilian because it's something that we share even with reptiles. And so it is very basic, very fundamental, and it is really about survival. So the idea that there might be a scarcity of something I need to survive, that's a big deal. And you have to act quickly, you have to act decisively in order to address that. Or there might be other things that are so noxious that we know we have to avoid them. And do you think these are things that we might be getting these bottom-up things from sort of deep childhood things that suddenly when we're overwhelmed, we go into, there's not enough in the world for me, help, or I'm just so scared that I just close down? Is it the reason it's bottom up because it's actually really from our very child brain or a very young brain as well as our reptilian brain? Yes, I think that is accurate. I think it's a very primitive sort of or early kind of reaction. So yeah, it's almost precognition before we really are able to think clearly and interpret and make good judgments about something. It's just this automatic reactivity. And you're right, that can be something that the childhood environment that one lives in 
the degree to which it feels safe and secure versus, you know, scary and vulnerable, the degree to which you are actually nurtured. So there isn't a sense of scarcity, but you have what you need in order to feel good and survive. And if those things are not present, then yeah, the person develops a sort of tone, if you will, that they have a greater tendency to react to things that they should not react to. Then let's go up to the muddled middle, where I think a lot of us are going to recognize this, panic, rumination, and compulsivity. Talk me through that. Yeah. So uh, again, remembering that the brain functions by communicating with itself in these different centers. And for some people, I think there's a genetic variability here. And I also think that there's other influences. But there are some people whose system is simply overly sensitive, overreactive to things. And so the panic button, for example, gets set off way too easily for them. And and people who have actual panic attacks, they know this very much, that there are times when they go into an outright panic, even if there has been nothing that has triggered it. Oftentimes, it takes a little bit of something to trigger it. But sometimes it can happen even when they're alone and there's absolutely nothing threatening. It's almost like the home alarm system that is set way too sensitive. So, you know, a passing car, for example, might set it off or something like that. So that's one pattern. The other two patterns, the compulsivity and rumination, I think of as having far too much activity in this part of the brain. So there's too much energy. There's a sense of agitation. And these communication pathways go into overdrive and they start looping, if you will. So there isn't any clear decision made that this is what I need to do about something. Instead, there's this loop almost like a broken record or an old-fashioned record with a scratch in it that keeps going over the same ground again and again. But there's a sense of edginess or agitation and a little too much energy in this part of the brain. And then we have the top down where there is two things. There's worry and learned fear. So what's the difference between fear and anxiety then as far as you're concerned? This is simply semantics, but I think of fear as a normal physiological reaction, that there are times where we should be afraid of something, whereas anxiety is something that we are doing to ourselves. We are creating it with our own thinking. We are feeding it, so to speak, and we keep kind of going over the same fearful thoughts. But it is about the future, usually. It's, it's, anxiety is, tends to be future-focused. Fear might also be future focused, but it's happening in the moment. You're actually, you're feeling fearful right now about something that you think is a threat. But the fear can come from the past because, you know, something bad happened. Somebody left you, so somebody else could leave you sort of thing. So it has a past element to it, fear, doesn't it? It does. It's almost like the remnants of the past that are lodged in your mind. And again, there's a spectrum of this. People who have had a car accident, for example, at a certain intersection or in certain conditions, well, they're going to probably react to that same condition when they do it again. But if it's a child that experienced really severe abuse in childhood, you know, that's a whole nother level of conditioning that is sometimes really hard to overcome. 
So let's continue thinking about all these different forms of anxiety and let's think about the brain chemistry. What you're saying is what we put in our mouths has an impact on our anxiety levels. Yes, it does. So one of the places I go to to try to understand the human condition and the human body is actually Ayurvedic medicine, which is, you know, Indian. And it's an ancient tradition, and it's I think it's elegant and, and beautiful in its own way. But one of the things they do very well is to articulate that people are built differently. We have different subtypes, different patterns. And depending on your pattern, or you, if you're currently feeling imbalanced, you might need very different kinds of diets in order to feel good or get yourself back into balance. So for example, people who are more anxious and fearful and have that scarcity type of feeling, they tend to do better with foods or diet that is calming and soothing. And that includes healthy carbs, you know, and and not too much protein in this instance. What are healthy carbs? Healthy carbs are things that don't get too quickly converted into blood sugar. So, for example, let's say you're having wheat, if you eat wheat and you're not gluten sensitive, you're better off having whole grain rather than refined white flour. That's a healthier carb. A lot of the healthiest carbs are vegetable or beans and legumes that have lots of fiber in them. So one of the keys is you want to keep your blood sugar really stable because blood sugar and insulin, this is all really part of this stress response system. So keeping your blood sugar steady allows for, for one thing, the brain is a lot happier when it has a steady supply of glucose. It doesn't perceive it as an emergency, but also it allows for the making of these brain chemicals, these neurotransmitters that are so key to keeping us feeling good and calm and soothed. I think you put it really nicely when you say eat food. And by that, you mean what our grandparents would recognize as food, because what we recognize as food, they would be a little bit suspicious about. Right. It's really amazing how creative the food makers have become at using a few ingredients and creating all these vastly different products. But yes, so our ancestors, let's say 100, 150 years ago, would have had a diet that was just much closer to the form that it it is when you harvest it. It hasn't been altered very much. It hasn't had nutrients taken out and other nutrients added back in. By and large, it was raised in organic conditions because that was all that they had. (laughs) And so, you know, really thinking about how we evolved and how our ancestors ate, it is helpful to a degree. And I don't think we have to go that far back. I'm in my early 60s, and my mother, when I was a child, basically cooked everything from scratch. If we were going to have a pie, she got flour and water out to make the pastry. (laughs) I know that sounds sounds terribly old-fashioned. How quaint! (laughs) No, exactly. That's true for me, too. Yeah, I think that it was... It's really in the last maybe 30 to 40 years that things have changed so dramatically in terms of how food is prepared and how easily accessible it is and so forth. 
But it's obviously, we can't go into this in as much depth as we should do, but really looking at your diet with this is incredibly important. The next part of it is to be able to recharge your body. And so this is about exercise, I suppose. It is, but it's also about activity and rest, both. And remembering that that's the normal cycle. So, for example, an animal in nature whose life is really threatened by a predator, they will have an enormous stress response, you know, just huge fight or flight reaction. And let's say they survive that, then their system goes into this what's called rest and digest pattern. So they might have just run for their lives. And then if they survive and the danger is gone, their stress system comes down really quickly. And they spend the next, you know, 24 hours or so just resting and eating to try to, you know, restore their energy. And and that's a good way to think about our own activity, that we are not meant to be always on. Even exercise, you know, people who are good about it, you're not meant to always be exercising really vigorously. So, you know, be thinking about it in a a much more organic, natural way. It's good for us, I think, to get some kind of movement or, or exercise every day, but there should be some days that are really laid back, more easy, gentle, restful, if you will. And then also, you know, if you have bursts of activity, you do need rest and recovery after that. And something I heard recently, and I'd be interested to hear your thought about it, is actually finishing off the stress cycle. So often we try and clamp it down and it's still stuck in our body and you almost need to sort of run it off or march it off. Uh, Otherwise, you've got that stress trapped in your body. What do you think of that idea? Is that truthful or not? I think it's very true. And I think that Psychologists who work a lot with trauma victims are really trying to utilize this as a means of freeing them because there is a sense in which the trauma really does live in the body until it's released. And so back to the wild animal and nature example, after they survive, if they do, they literally shake it off. Their body goes into this sort of spasm of vigorous shaking that can go on for minutes. And it's almost as if they are resetting or, or rebooting the computer, so to speak, because they're, they're discharging all of that energy, all of those hormones that built up and the lactic acid that built up. And it's just a way of completely releasing it from them. And then they go on as if they weren't just threatened with death. And so, you know, humans too, if there's, if, if there are ways that we can find to literally shed the experience consciously, you know, on purpose, releasing it from our body, it can be incredibly freeing. Sometimes when I do a meditation, we start off by shaking the stress out of our bodies, a bit mm-hmm. like the old shaker religion in America. We'd sort of, from our knees, just shaking our whole body to try and just get some of the, that stress out before we meditate. Is that the sort of idea that you're thinking about? It is. And I think that if you do something like that consciously, you know, that you, you, you decide in your own mind, I am going to shake off my stress right now. And then you do it. I think, you know, you're, you're coming at it from a lot of different great angles. You're creating the thought in your mind. You're taking action and doing something. You're getting your body in the act and the body doesn't have to think about all this. It just happens. So I think it, it's a great way to engage this at a lot of different levels at once. And that is actually quite effective. And I would say at least five minutes. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because we're about to come on to the sort of Eastern Buddhist ideas, but before you sit down and start meditating, it sort of gives you a chance to get from that transition from the, oh, life is going, 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 to suddenly sitting down. It's actually quite a difficult transition to make. You know, we suddenly expect our mind to still. We haven't actually gone through any kind of transition, and that sh- shaking can help if you're going to meditate. And I think it's also a good thing to do if you're feeling stressed to actually have five minutes of shaking out the stress. Yeah, I think it's a great idea. I love that. So we're now on to some of the things that are more in my field, but and this one is so important, turn towards the feeling. Because actually, if we're frightened or anxious, we try and move away from it rather than turn towards it. So why should we move towards it? Right. So this is really a foundational concept of mindfulness, in my view. What mindfulness is about, really, is to try to really see things as they are and try to accept things as they are. And it's important to remember that doesn't mean that you don't do anything about it. You might very much do something about it. But the first thing is that you've got to see what is actually happening, honestly, courageously, without turning away from it. And so, you know, Feelings, even the bad negative feelings, can give us a lot of information that can be really helpful to us if we're trying to live a more conscious, meaningful, joyful life. It's just crucial information. So if I'm feeling badly, let's just say it's fear or anxiety, if I turn towards that and allow myself to actually experience the feeling, that's a really good start to being able to release it, to let it flow through your body. So I might really go into it and feel the sense of fearfulness and threat that's happening to me right now, but it does not last. It only goes on for a short time and then it moves on through your body and out of it. So what sort of things make you anxious then? Good question. A lot less than what used to be the case. You know, I'm a parent. I've got two now grown boys who I love dearly and they're doing fine. But I will say that some of the the worst times for me of getting caught up in fear is when they're struggling. And that doesn't happen as much anymore. But when they were young, you know, their, their own emotional pain would invariably make me feel that way. And I, I would, you know, go to that place of, you know, fearing that things weren't going to work out for them or so forth. So that's, that's a really clear example in my mind. And so how would you turn towards that feeling without actually going and overloading your sons with, oh, I'm terribly worried about you, which isn't going to help. Exactly. Well, I gradually learned that if I could react with less fear and anxiety, that it would be helpful to them. But the most helpful thing I could do, in other words, for them was to manage my own anxiety. And I got better at that. So, you know, for me, that meant in the moment when, let's just say, my son got uh, rejected by a friend or something, and I start, you know, going into those thought loops. If I could recognize right then and there what's happening to me, that I'm just making this up in my mind, I'm starting to think about this, it's making me feel bad, I'm about to say something to him that's going to make it worse. All of that, when I become conscious of it, by turning toward the feeling, it allows me to step back just enough that I can make a different decision about it. So I, in that 
example, I could remind myself that, okay, this is not about him. This is about me. And I, I need to manage this feeling so that I don't infect him with it, you know, that kind of thing. And I think another thing that you suggest would be useful at this point, and that's check the story. You know, what is the story? Oh my God, if this friend rejects him, everybody's going to reject him. Exactly. Yes. And, you know, the story, of course, goes on and on. So if people reject him now, he's going to grow up and be, you know, unloved and alone, and, or that that's going to reflect on me, or it's, you know, you know if he's going to be miserable, <laughs> he'll be living in my basement, and you, know, you can go and on I'll and on with it. I'll be a bad father. <laughs> exactly. You know, it's never ending if you allow it to go on. And this this is really tough, but let's go for it. What we've got to try and get is some form of self-acceptance, because deep down, and this is one of your quotes, which I love, suffering is kept alive by the false belief that we are flawed and inadequate. I'm going to say that again, because I think it is so true, that actually underneath all of these fears is the idea that the suffering is kept alive by the false belief we're flawed and inadequate. Tell me about that. Right. Well, I believe that most of our suffering, at least our mental, emotional suffering, is caused by thoughts just like that, by beliefs that we don't even know we have, that we don't question, but they're there, and they just keep replaying and replaying. So that's why it's so important initially to become aware that you're having these thoughts and feelings, to turn toward the emotion and to recognize the thought that's behind it. And the thought that's behind the thought as well. Yes. And the thought that's behind that, because the further back we go, the foundational thoughts, I mean, if we say out loud, you know, I'm flawed and inadequate, well, you know, it's ludicrous. You know, I'm a bit rough around the edges and sometimes I'm not as good as I could be, but I'm sorry, I'm not inadequate. (laughs) Exactly. I love the uh, story about the uh, Zen master who says to his students, you are perfect as you are. And you could use a little improvement. <laughs> yeah, you know, that's okay. We, all, we could use a little improvement, but, you know, we're really not so bad um, as we are. And so, you know, it, but it is a, I think in the, in the Western world, this is such a common belief that we have about ourselves, that there's something just deeply wrong with us. Well, and we're all the time bombarded with adverts that suggest in some shape or form that if only we had this product and or if we only looked this way, we would somehow no longer be flawed. That's right, isn't it? Yeah. It's very easy to believe it. Right. Yeah. We're, we get the messages constantly. And if you were able to really notice your own thinking during the day, you'd realize that you're giving yourself those messages over and over and over again. I think we should do something that you call a loving-kindness meditation. Could you help us with understanding what a loving-kindness meditation is? And perhaps you could even lead us on one? Of course. So loving-kindness medication, this does come from the Zen or the mindfulness tradition. And it is one of the pillars, if you will, of really finding joy or happiness in your life, which is to learn to love well. You know, and, and loving kindness really means that you are working to create an internal state of compassion 
of love toward another, of acceptance toward another, and toward yourself. Many times this is done in sequences. And so the very first person that you might bring to mind is yourself. Why don't I close my eyes? And if you're listening to this podcast, driving a car, maybe you should pull it over or finish the podcast off another time. But I'm just going to sit here and I'm going to let you lead me through this. Okay. So we'll do a brief loving kindness meditation. So initially you can just allow your body to relax, to settle into the chair or the cushion or whatever you're on, just allow yourself to sink into the earth. I've got my feet on the floor, my hands in my lap. That's great. And then allow your awareness to be on your breath. Let's say for just three complete breaths, using each breath as an invitation to deepen in this moment, to allow the mind to settle, the body to relax, and for yourself to deepen into the moment. I've just relaxed my shoulders finally. Great. And then, using your imagination, bring to mind an image of yourself. Maybe when you were young and feeling vulnerable or alone or scared in some way, try to remember what was happening, that time in your life, and seeing this image of yourself, offer yourself a blessing. May you be at peace. May you be at peace. May you be filled with loving kindness. May you be filled with loving kindness. May you know that you are safe and you are not alone. May you know that you are safe and not alone. And then allow that image to fade and bring an image of a loved one, someone that you know very well and love very dearly. It could be someone who's in your life now or in the past. And just see that person very clearly. And it's as if you could invite them into the room of your heart right now in this moment and offer them your blessing. May you be filled with joy. May you be filled with joy. May you be at peace. May you be at peace. And we'll do one more so you can let that image go and just bring an image now of of someone who is difficult for you. Not the most difficult, perhaps, but someone who you either find a little bit annoying or you just have some mild issues with. See that person as clearly as you can. And as much as you're able, invite them into the space of your heart and offer them 
your blessing too. May you be filled with peace. May you be filled with peace. May you enjoy loving kindness. May you enjoy loving kindness. And then just sit for another moment, enjoying the experience of your own heart's openness to whatever degree that's there. Just feeling a sense of warmth or expansion or acceptance. And then allowing your eyes to open again and bringing yourself back. That was beautiful. Absolutely. Well, I won't tell you who, who I brought into my mind, but it was, <laughs> it was a really good thing to do. And I'm feeling, actually, by sort of opening my heart to those other people, I sort of feel more open to myself as well. Yeah. So, you know, I think it's really important to remember that when we do a meditation like this, we're really doing it for ourselves. You know, it might be that we are blessing others and we see it almost as that we're giving something to others, but we are giving that to ourselves as well. And, you know, really you do this kind of practice because being more open and knowing how to love yourself or others better, it always feels good and it always helps protect you mentally and emotionally from all the challenges that we face. And I I don't think we bless enough, to be perfectly honest. It's a sort of old-fashioned idea, and it's something that belongs to priests that, you know, somehow we can't do. But actually, it felt really powerful to repeat those blessings with you. Yes. And I think it's also helpful to point out that doing a practice like this, it's not meant to be limited to the five or 10 or 20 minutes that you're doing it. You're really trying to transform yourself so that this is in a sense, this is how you live, that you are always seeing the good in others. You're always able to go through your days with a greater sense of openness and expansion and compassion or kindness for others. You know, that you really want this to be the air in which you breathe and the water in which you swim. You know, you want it to be your life. Blessing is the air that you breathe. That's a lovely thought. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to breathe out blessings today and breathe them in. That's a lovely image. I love that. Yeah. So in a moment, we're going to look specifically at helping somebody who's written to us who has anxiety, and we'll be doing that in just a moment. The Meaningful Life with Andrew G. Marshall. Please follow us on Twitter, like us on Facebook, and visit our website, andrewgmarshall.com forward slash podcast where you can join our supporters club and unlock bonus material and other benefits so one of the great advantages of joining our supporters circle is that you can send in letters to be considered by me and my guest and this is the one i have today i never realized how anxious i can be until i move to another country It is partly the language, partly I don't understand how things work in a different culture, but every time an official letter comes, I start to panic. Back home, I knew how things worked. 
I could convince myself when I was overthinking and that my fears were extremely unlikely to come true. I also didn't take many risks. I lived in the same house for 20 plus years and I changed jobs only twice over that period. But now I wake up at two or three in the morning gripped with fear. What if the authorities do this? What if they find out about that? I can feel my body tightening up, my mind racing. I don't sleep, I'm irritable. My wife speaks the language and tells me I'm overreacting. Deep down, I know she's right, but I mainly feel misunderstood. I like my adopted country. My wife is pleased to be here, and after years living in my homeland, it only seems fair. But I'm overwhelmed about a quarter of the time. So I think we can all recognise that waking up at two and three in the morning gripped with fear. What are your thoughts about this? First, let me say, good for you for doing something like this. You know, this is clearly outside the comfort zone, you know, having lived in the same house for 20 years and kind of feeling nice and safe and secure. You know, taking a big life change and a chance like this is ultimately a really good thing to have done. And I think it might be helpful even to try to shift your thinking a little bit about this, that it's not that you are taking this huge risk, but that you are doing such good things for your brain by creating novelty and challenge and even a little bit of discomfort that you have to work with, because this is the kind of thing that makes the brain grow and grow stronger and literally getting new brain cells and neurons that connect with one another. You know, So it's exactly the kind of thing that you want to do. It just would be nice to do it without such fear. <laughs> so, um, so maybe, you know, in your own way of thinking about this, you can make that subtle shift in how you view this whole experience. But you also need to, you know, try to learn some ways to dampen the stress reaction that you're having. But you already have the seeds for that in the letter that you wrote, because you're, you're aware that this is overthinking. And Almost always, when we get caught up in fear and this repetitive rumination about things that have not happened, but they could happen, it is almost always created by thought. It's not true. It's not real. What your mind is thinking might be happening is not actually happening. And so I know it sounds subtle, but it's actually quite helpful to just recognize that these are thoughts. It's not true with a capital T. You're creating a lot of this in your own thinking and your own mind. And simply by recognizing that, it takes a lot of the power away from the thoughts. Now, I think it's also helpful to have a few things in your toolkit to be able to calm yourself down and reduce the body's reactivity. So, you know, find some form of movement or exercise that discharges some of this energy. Find some ways of distracting yourself when you get caught up in this thinking so that you're not just letting the mind run rampant. So what sort of ways could we distract ourselves if we see ourselves going into that loop of, oh my God, they're going to find out about this, they're going to come for me for that? How do we break that? 
Yeah, well, it has to be something that is either so absorbing or engaging that you can't do that thing in front of you and also be thinking these thoughts, or else something that simply gets you more grounded in your body. So for an example of doing something that's absorbing or engaging might be doing a game or a puzzle or watching a movie that you really like or something like that. Doing something that gets you grounded in your body so that you're out of your head and into your body might be, you know, petting your dog or having a something you, you hold in your hand that gives you that tactile sensation that you can place your focus upon. If you're good enough or, or experienced enough at meditation, you could just use your breath as the vehicle for that. But you could do something with your body, like go for a walk or, you know, lay down in the grass or something like that, where there's a a sensory part of the experience that you can direct your attention to. And I like one of your statements in the book. In fact, a couple of days ago, I had something that could have sent me into a loop. And I remembered this phrase, so I pass it on. We give power to what we give attention. So we give power to what we give attention. So explain that. Well, I really believe that this concept is true, that where we place our mind's attention is what grows in our lives. And I, I think that you can, you can do a simple experiment and bear that out, that if you are shifting your focus to something that gives you a sense of joy or a sense of hopefulness, you are going to find that you have more of those feelings in your life. It is one of the most helpful practices that I know of to learn to notice where your mind is at any given time. It's a simple kind of thing with a little practice. You know, meditation is the conventional tried and true way to develop the skill of being able to notice your own mind, to observe it, and see what it is directing its attention toward. It's pretty terrifying when you do. You realize it's forever. <laughs> it's forever leaping from twig to twig, thinking about a whole load of nonsense, I would say, most of the time. It is. And, you know, one of the things I like to point out to people is that it is not necessary for, for you to stop doing that. In other words, the nature of the mind is just as you described. It's to jump from twig to twig like a wild monkey. You can't will yourself to stop that. And you don't have to. You simply have to notice that you're doing it, accept that that's part of who you are, and then learn to redirect yourself to something else. And over time, by doing that, you will find that you do less of that jumping from twig to twig. When you were talking about redirecting there, uh, originally I had a bird in my mind. I had a sort of a, a robin or a sparrow hopping from place to place. And I suddenly thought, well, let's get rid of the sparrow and let's have an eagle just way up above looking down at everything. And I immediately felt sort of my mind felt a little bit calmer. Yeah, right. Exactly. So, you know, we have the power to do that with our minds if we develop the skill to observe the processes of our own minds and recognize that thinking is happening all the time and it is nothing more than thinking. And have you always been this calm? Because just sitting here talking to you, I just feel <laughs> very calm. Is this, is this the result of a lot of work or did you arrive naturally calm in this world? That's a great question. 
no, I've not always been this calm, but I do, I do think that it is my nature to have some degree of equanimity. I think that's probably always been true. But like most of us, I've also found myself at many times in my life completely losing my equanimity, you know. But it's it's a sort of a interesting paradox. You asked if I've worked very hard to be able to be this calm, and it's almost the opposite of that, that if I work too hard at it, I, I just make it worse. So there's this weird paradox that it's 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 almost effortless. You know, it's it's just by letting go. It's more about releasing and letting go of things that don't matter or that aren't true or aren't real. And that process, yes, it does take some time and attention, but it it's not effortful, if you will. So it's attention rather than effort. And I think that's that's beautiful. Thank you. Mm-hmm. As I've invited you onto the meaningful life to be a witness today about what makes life meaningful, I have to ask you what makes your life meaningful? I feel like now at age 62, I am, I am finally practicing what I preach <laughs> a little bit better than I have before. And, and so this, is, this doesn't sound very specific, but I, I really feel as if I am now in the process of really learning to love well, which I think is really what life is about, and of learning to tap into the joy that is all around us, all of the time, all of the time. I mean, I, I believe that we are swimming in joy. You know, most of us don't see that because we think we're swimming in pain and fear. But I I feel like I am shifting my own attention to recognizing that that's there, even when life is difficult or challenging. What exactly do you mean by learning to love well? Well, one thing is that I'm getting better and better at seeing the goodness in other people, you know, of more or less ignoring the other side of it and just no, we're calling it shifting the attention to it. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Because that's there too. So so that's part of it is to really see that the innocence and the goodness and the people around me. I think self-acceptance is a huge part of that, learning to love well also. And then I I think that it also just has a lot to do with realizing that the fundamental reality in our world and in our universe is one of love rather than one of fear. You know, and lots of people have talked about that in different ways, but it's, it's different when you begin to actually experience that and believe that to be true. Well, that's a, a beautiful thought to finish on. Well, we're not quite finishing because if you're a member of our supporters circle, you'll be able to hear the rest of the interview. But uh, for the time being, we're going to say goodbye. And thank you very much, Henry, for helping us all be calm for the last 50 minutes or so. You're very welcome. It's been a pleasure. You've been listening to The Meaningful Life with Andrew G. Marshall. You can follow Andrew on Twitter, like him on Facebook, and please leave a review wherever you consume your podcasts. Making, editing, and distributing The Meaningful Life comes with substantial costs, and we'd like to ask for your help. 
visit our website, andrewgmarshall.com forward slash podcast, where you can join our supporters club and unlock bonus material for every program, send in a letter to be discussed by Andrew and his guests, and join a community of other people seeking to make their life meaningful. At the gold level, you get even more benefits. Production of The Meaningful Life with Andrew G. Marshall is by Michael Dooney. Social media by Madeleine Healy. Sound engineering and theme tune by Sebastian de la Luz Mendoza. And I'm Susie Colick. Please tell your friends and spread the word. Thank you.